I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome back, fellow optimists. It's Sofia Tapia here again, your host on the Future Positive Podcast, a podcast from XPRIZE that aims to bring you the most future-forward topics from the world's brightest minds. If you're new to Future Positive, in each episode, you'll hear from world leaders, creators, entrepreneurs, innovators, and changemakers who are paving the way for innovation on and off this planet we call home. Our oceans, and specifically fish, have been on our cultural menu recently with the success of the much-talked-about documentary, Seaspiracy, and the Academy Award success of the film, My Octopus Teacher. So for this week's episode, journalist Amelia Abraham takes a deep dive into the deep blue with XPRIZE Feed the Next Billion judge and all-around fish guy, Dr. Keith Cox. They explore the depths of ocean health and how cultivated and plant-based fish can really help with healing this fragile ecosystem. So sit tight, forward all calls, and get ready for takeoff. Hi, Keith. Thank you so much for being on Future Positive. I wondered to start with, please could you introduce yourself? Um, my name is Keith Cox, and um, I am the chief science officer and a co-founder of a company called CQ Foods. Our company manufactures a handheld device that measures electrical properties of proteins and fruits and vegetables, and then uses those electrical properties to relate um, those electrical properties back to cell growth or cell death and um, and body composition, such as fat and protein, water weight and dry weight. Cool. And you're also uh, a judge on Feed the Next Billion. Yes, I am. And so I was I was asked to um, be a judge this year, and I'm happily doing that. Um, I got introduced to all these fine folks. Um, I think I was invited through New Harvest, and I was and I was asked to give a talk at MIT uh, about measuring stuff and how we use electricity to measure things such as how much fat is in a fish or how long that fish has been harvested. And, and different things like that. And so got to meet all those folks. And then I guess about a year, year and a half later, um, they asked me to be a judge. Amazing. And final question for context, well, tell us where you are right now. Um, I'm in Juneau, Alaska. And so I've been in Juneau, Alaska for almost 20 years. And, and I've worked as a professor at University of Alaska here in Juneau, and also in Sitka, Alaska at a, at a place called Sheldon Jackson College. I've worked for, um, you know, our, in the United States, we have, our federal government has, has a huge NOAA, 
National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration. And so I worked for, I worked for those guys here in Juneau. And while I was here in Juneau working with these guys, I was, I was up in the Bering Sea, up in those big boats, and, um, and around the Gulf of Alaska, you know, using this technique to look at fish health and, and, and help with, with some of the population numbers that these guys are, tr are, are trying, to, trying to calculate. So you're kind of a fish expert, we could say, which is handy because we're here to talk about fish today. Uh, <laughs> I guess so, yes. Yeah. Feed the Next Billion is uh, an X-Prize prize, a competition to incentivize teams to create viable chicken and fish alternatives. So I thought a good place to start our conversation would be, why is this necessary? Well, this is, I think it's necessary because um, I think it's important to, to always be, with human population growth, I think it's always necessary to look at how we are going to feed these populations of people. And as healthcare improves and improves and improves, and time to death for humans increases and increases, and, you know, we need to have good, healthy means to, to feed our populations around the world. And so relying on one specific um, area is not smart, whether I mean, it, you should diversify the portfolio in terms of foodstuffs that we, that, that's available for people. And so I think um, it's important to create these different alternatives as kind of a support mechanism for our, our increasing human population. And so um, that's the first thing. And then the second thing is, Right now, a lot of, you know, in my case, since I'm a fish guy, a lot of the, the, the protein demand, and especially after COVID, we're seeing an increase in, in protein demand um, coming from the seafood sector. So being able to create different protein alternatives is important because it can take some of the pressure off of marine resources. And, and at the same time, it can make what we are extracting out of the oceans better because there'll be more focus on quality rather than than quantity. Yeah, I'd love for you to say a little bit more about that actually um, because I think there's a bit of an interest in the moment in uh, how we're treating our oceans after this certain documentary, Sea Spiracy Ed. Um, you know, it's pretty divisive, but I, I would love to hear your, you know, insight into what kind of pressures um, the current system is putting on the ocean. Um, I know that, as you just said, diversifying helps take the pressure off. So I'd love to hear about what those pressures are. Well, it's, and so it's, it's really hard to, when you're a scientist, and so a scientist, when it's, when it's coming up with numbers, um, it's hard to like hone in on one number. And so like a classic example I give is ask an oceanographer what the temperature of the ocean is. And it's, it's like almost impossible to answer. You know, are you talking about the bottom of the ocean, the top of the ocean, over here, over there, the middle of the ocean, what time of day? There's so many variables. And so when you're looking at marine resources and, um, and you're trying to, trying to look at these pressures, you can look at the numbers, you can sit in on, on, on meetings and you'll have one organization saying, saying one number and another organization saying another number. And for example, the FAO concludes that the maximum wild fisheries potential has been reached. And they're saying that 80% of the world's fish stocks 
um, for which assessment information is available is reported as fully exploited. But then you look at another set of data that says 78.7% of the current landings come from biologically sustainable stocks. And so it's probably somewhere in the middle there. And, and so what everybody's trying to achieve with exploiting or extracting you know, marine resources is, is maintaining a maximum sustainable yield. They call that MSY. And that's how much can you, how much of that population of a particular organism can you take out of the ocean under the existing environmental conditions and have a balance to where that population can reproduce and survive, then fish, and then reach that maximum sustainable yield. And there's buffers built into that. So, so you should be able to have a sustainable stock. But a lot of that maximum sustainable yield, the MSY, is based off of population numbers, how many fish are out there, how many crab are out there, um, the landings, how much is extracted from the ocean, and then, the, then another piece of it is the environmental conditions and how those affect the biology of the organisms. You know, if you do have a, a, a climate situation that um, improves, then that fish stock can maybe have more fish, you know, um, have, more, have more fish that they, that they produce. Likewise, if you have, if the, if the, if the environmental conditions then get worse, then a lot of the stock maybe won't survive. And so then you have to adjust your maximum sustainable yield based on those things. And just like when we were just talking about the numbers, knowing how many fish are really out there is really, really hard to figure out. And it's pretty hard to figure out the landings um, in areas that maybe don't have a lot of oversight and checking to see what's what's taking in how many fish are actually being captured as well as the environmental conditions you know just like the oceanographer explaining the ocean temperature in terms of a cold water fish and how that's going to affect the biology and how it can you know is the fish going to dump its energy into gonad or egg development or is it going to put it into growth and if it doesn't put it into growth then that's going to affect the fecundity of the thing and so it is, it is really important to like understand that, that, that the numbers do fluctuate from left to right, and there's really not one little spot that you can hone in on. That makes sense. It does. And so when you're, when you're looking at things like, like seaspiracy, there's a lot going on behind the numbers. And so if I think it's an accurate representation of the oceans um, right now, I mean, that would be almost impossible for anybody to have a super accurate representation of the state of the oceans. For example, I have not seen the movie. I need to see the movie, but I'm, I'm a busy person, and that is definitely on my list to watch the movie. We, we have discussions about it here in Alaska. It's raised the hair of you know, all my fishing friends, and so it's important for me to watch that. But I went and looked at some of the facts on there, and so one of the things that they said is... Um, uh, is, is that the oceans will be empty by 2048. Now that's very dramatic. And, um, and so the, the, the film is, is very dramatic. The fishing industry in the Gulf of Mexico destroys more animals in a day than Deepwater Horizon. I don't know if that's true or not. You know, that would be really, really hard to, you know, um, put a gun to my head and say, is that true or not? Bottom, bottom 
trawling decimates, you know, so many million acres of seabed each year. And fish farming. Here in Alaska, you know, fish farming is really frowned upon. Um, and, and, the, and the film found that a single salmon farm in Scotland can produce as much waste as a town of up to uh, 20,000 people. And so, you know, somebody, you could go to these people and be like, okay, show me your data. And they could show you the data, you know? And so if you're saying the oceans are empty by 2048, there's a whole lot of predictive modeling going on there. And so there's a whole lot of variables that are going in there to predict this crash by 2048. And so, um, but what I think is important about all this is that it does bring attention to these important points. Well, I'm not saying that the ocean's going to crash by 2048, but we all want the ocean to be, we want it to be a sustainable, happy place that we can all enjoy and enjoy wild seafood products and enjoy the ocean and have, and have healthy oceans. And so um, educating the consumers and everybody around the world that these things could happen, I think is, is, is terribly important. And it also gets people to look for alternatives um, to maybe take some of the pressure off of our ocean resources. And, um, and so I think that's, that's super important. And it drives technology to, to take some of the pressure off of our ocean resources. I want to talk to you about some of those alternatives in just a moment. You've said that there are a lot of moving parts when it comes to these types of st statistics. And I think for the average person watching Seaspiracy, certainly when I watched it, I was thinking, you know, I got to take some of these numbers with a pinch of salt. But I wondered, your, in your time doing what you do, have you seen anything change sort of firsthand in terms of um, the health of the oceans and particularly the fish in them? Hmm. Well, it's always it's always changing. And so what particularly have I seen? Um, I've seen the, the size of salmon decrease over time. The jury's out on what's causing that. Um, but then at the same time, I was born in the 70s. And so then the, the flip side of that is I have seen a, a dramatic improvement, you know, due to like the United States Clean Water Act. You know, and so you do have when, when, when there's a problem out there and then there's mitigation to try and overcome those problems, we do see good results. I think a third of the, the U.S. waterways, a third, um, it might be more than that, I think a third of the U.S. waterways before the Clean Water Act were unswimmable. Not undrinkable, unswimmable. Like you couldn't swim in them. And then so then the Clean Water Act came in and so then now we have, you know, that has dramatically changed, but a lot of it was due to awareness. Um, I can't think of like other examples off the top of my head where I have really seen, seen change. As a, as a science guy, I was, more, I was more dealing with like how fish grow in terms of energy allocation. And so I was, I was doing a lot of fisheries modeling and so um, I don't really, I can't really reflect on something that's really changed over the past, like, say, 15 years. In a positive way, a lot of, a lot, a lot more awareness from everybody, like, on my mom and dad's level to, you know, to fisheries biology. There's a lot more awareness on what's going on in the ocean. And people are starting to understand about fish waste and how that can be detrimental to the oceans. And Seaspiracy said that, you know, fishing nets is more of a problem than straws but 
the straws in the nostrils, you know, of the turtle has caused an enormous amount of awareness in terms of marine resources. So things like that. And so I think it's, I think it's super important that people are aware of where their food products are coming from, um, what's in those food products, how it affects their health, how it can benefit their health. And I think all those are very, very positive things. Great. So while we're on that topic, let's talk about uh, fish alternatives. For anyone who doesn't know, are there different types? Or what, what do we mean when we say fish alternatives? I'm a classically trained fisheries biologist. So we have a lot of the judges that are also food scientists. And I work with a lot of those guys. And so I've been, I've been you know, getting a thorough education since my, my time with my company. And so some of the food, some of the fish alternatives, uh, you can look at surimi. And so what surimi is, is pollock that's used as a, that can be used as a crab substitute. Fish fillets are made of muscle, which is made of proteins. And so you can, you can extract those proteins and proteins are kind of like uh, kinky hair, you know, like somebody that has really, really curly hair. And then maybe you put conditioner on it and straightener and then you can reshape it, but then it will, will tend to go back into its like curliness. And so you can take, a, you can take um, pollock proteins and you can kind of stretch those out, then form them to look like crab meat. And then they'll reset and then they, they look like crab meat, they taste like crab meat. And so that would be like the first thing, which is, which is a substitute. And so but if you look at price per pound, and so um, pollock dockside price is about 16 cents a pound versus king crab, which is um, about $11 per pound. And that's dockside. That's how much the fisherman is selling it for. And so there's a tremendous price difference between, um, you know, pollock and king crab. And so that would be, that is a substitute. There's also vegetable substitutes. You can look online. And so maybe you have um, um, vegetarian friends or vegan friends, and you're having a sushi party. You can, you can easily use um, some vegetable substitutes in, in lieu of that seafood or tofu. That's another one. And then one of the, one of the more recent ones that I'm being introduced is, is the cultured meats, which is um, where this uh, competition is, is focused on. And so there's, there's, there's some examples of some of the, the fish substitutes that you see out there. Amazing. Thank you for explaining that. Yeah. So the, the competition's agnostic. So entries can involve plant-based or cultivated fish. Uh, just to get to the core of why we need these, why could they help the situation we currently face in terms of fishing? I think they take the pressure off wild caught stocks. And so if, if there's, there's an obvious increase in, um, there's an increase in the, the, in the demand for seafood products, right? And the, so there's an increase in the demand, but a lot of our seafood stocks, um, and not like chicken stock, we're talking like stock is in the populations of fish in the ocean, are at or close to their maximum sustainable yield. So how in the world do you satisfy that demand, you know, with a supply that is limited? And so one of the ways is through these alternative these alternative products. Another way people are doing it is, is underutilized fish species. And so something that 
someone normally wouldn't be eating, maybe because the product is a little mushy or, or something like that, maybe like the Pollock. And so then they try and how can you utilize that product to then um, to satisfy that demand? And so that's why things like Ceremi are, are around there. And so by looking at these, these different cultivated fish and plant-based fish alternatives, it's taking the pressure off the wild stocks. And I think, I think at the same time, by taking the pressure off the wild stocks, there will be less of a need to um, have a volume-based fisheries. And, and, the, and the folks that are fishing can focus more on, on quality of their products rather than the quantity of their products. And I think that's another huge one. Because with, you know, seafood waste, and so again, it's one of those number games, it's somewhere between 25% and 50% of all seafood products are thrown away, which is just, a, it's, it's kind of appalling, right? Um, and seafood is a very, very perishable item. So everybody's probably smelled a bad fish. And, um, and part of the reason is um, if we can move from a quantity-based fishery to a quality-based fishery, um, there'll be more attention paid to the quality, which will then improve the shelf life. It'll improve the quality of the fish. It'll improve a lot, a lot of things. And that's, and, and I think I should touch on that just for, for a brief minute, you know, just kind of the difference between a quality and a quantity based. If you're catching, if you're catching, if you're a quantity based, you might scoop up all these fish and leave them on the back deck of your boat. And then you're going to go set your net again. And then you're going to put that other scoop of fish right on top of that first group of fish. And then maybe, maybe not, you, you don't even ice your fish. You just take those fish um, straight to the processing plant and, and process those. Well, if you have, if you're somewhere, even in Alaska where it's cold, um, heat accelerates the degradation process. And so you can have a fish that is at 55 degrees Fahrenheit for 24 hours, and that fish will have lost, say, three or four days of shelf life because it's been at 60 degrees Fahrenheit. That's a quantity-based fishery. A quality-based fishery, you might have that, that net might come in slower, and then you pull each individual fish off, and then you, you harvest that fish and then place it in um, slush ice, which brings the temperature down immediately. And then you pack it on pack ice, and then you repeat that for the second fish, the third fish, and now you get a premium quality product that has an extended shelf life. And so that would be an example of a, of a quality-based fishery. And right now, um, if you have two fishermen and one, and this isn't across the board, but I think the majority of fishermen could agree with this, if you spend time maintaining the quality of your fish, you're going to catch less fish. And then boat number B is a quantity-based fishery, and you sell your fish at the same processing plant, you'll get the same price per pound. And the quantity-based fisherman is going to make more money than you because he has more pounds. And so the market will select for quantity rather than quality. And so I think that these fish alternatives, plant-based or cultivated fish, will then put more focus on quality of what we're extracting out of the ocean, if that makes sense. And so sorry for that little diatribe, but, but I think it's important. It's something that I've, that I've really, you know, looked into over the last few years.
That's definitely important and it makes total sense. I think one question people have about fish alternatives is, can it really taste the same? So I wanted to ask you, can it? And also, have you tried alternatives that do? Um, and does that question matter? Is it more of a case of sort of mixing up our diets more, perhaps eating less fish and eating more alternatives? Or what do you think about that? Well, can it taste the same? Well, I, th I think, as one of my ecology professors always used to say, is it depends. If you had a, a raw piece of king salmon, and then you had a plant-based king salmon alternative, and then you ate each one without anything added to it, I think you would be able to tell the difference right now. But if you were having a spicy tuna roll and one had spicy tuna and the other maybe had, you know, one of these other alternatives, then I don't think that you would really be able to taste the difference. And so it's, it's going to, or you're putting one in a sauce and you're eating one as, as sushi. I think it depends on the situation. And, um, and I think as, more and more of these cultivated, you know, meats, especially the cell-based ones. I think theoretically, in a, in a perfect world, they would be, it would be the exact same proteins as the cultivated meats, the cell-based. As soon as those reach maturity and reach production level, I would think that they would be, be pretty close to it. I don't know about the texture and all those other things, because if you do have a wild-caught salmon, you know, there's, there's a, a structure to its, to its muscles. And you've probably seen that. They kind of look like if you were to look at a fish fillet um, and then maybe cook it, then you would see um, the W's going across it. That's where the flakes are. And those are called myotomes. And so um, whether the cultured meats will then mimic the myotomes in the, in the fish muscle, we'll, we'll find out, I guess. But I think as we move closer and closer to it, I think they will converge. Will it, will it ever be a replacement for wild stock like across the board? I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't think so. I think there will always be a market for, for wild fish. Well, let's hope that Feed the Next Billion firstly leads to a kind of alternative that can capture the same texture. Um, and I wanted to ask you as a final question, while we work on alternatives to take the pressure off the oceans um, and the way that we're fishing them at the moment, in the meantime, what other steps are important to take? Uh, what can we do to protect fish and their ecosystems? I think the awareness. I think pay attention to where your seafood product's coming from. Ask where it's coming from. Labels should show where it's coming from. And um, there's a lot of the MSC certifications. There's, there's all kinds of certifications to know where your fish are coming from. And there's a lot of fish um, importation going on and so to really paying attention to, um, to where those fish are coming from. A good way to like learn about your fish is from your local fishmonger. Go to the counter and say hey I'm, I'm, this is important to me and the more the consumer buys products that are reducing waste and you know and, and, and there's kind of a triple bottom line and so it's like what's important to you you know and so is it is it like labor? Is it um, illegal fishing? Pay attention to all these things. Um, so, and, and think about reducing waste. I've always been a big proponent. I think one thing that people can do is um, buy frozen fish and, and cook frozen fish. The Alaska Seafood Marketing Institute here where I am in Juneau, they have a great cook it frozen campaign. And I do that all the time um, 
I'll come home and I'll pull a salmon fillet out and it'll be frozen solid. And I cut it out of the vac bag, the vacuum sealed bag, and I'll put it on a cookie sheet, cover it with vegetables and then olive oil and put it in the oven at 400 degrees for 20, 25 minutes. And it's as good as anything that's ever been fresh. The nice thing about the frozen products is it locks in the quality when that fish is frozen. And also um, they can slow ship it rather than trying to FedEx it across the country, you know, and flying it on airplanes, they can, you can ship it in frozen shipping containers. You can also um, disperse that product throughout the year rather than focused on one season. Oh, this is only sockeye season. So we need to like sell sockeye, sell sockeye. But, but using frozen fish, you can, you can trickle that product in at Christmas time and, you know, and throughout the spring and when, when sockeye season is not happening. And so that's, those are some of the things that I would focus on is how you can reduce waste, you know, and that would be focusing on where that product's coming from, looking at frozen product, talking to your fishmonger about, about the, the life history of those fish. And there's a lot of companies out here that are um, B2C companies, business to consumer companies that will ship frozen seafood directly to your door, to your door. And it's coming from usually community supported fisheries where you can, you can go to their website and you can see who's catching those fish. You can see how they're catching those fish and educate yourself. Amazing. Thank you so much, Keith. And that's really useful advice. That was Amelia Abraham in conversation with Dr. Keith Cox. Thanks for listening to this Future Positive podcast. If you'd like to support our show, share this episode with fellow futurist friends. And remember to subscribe, rate, and leave a review on Apple or wherever you get your pods. Your feedback really does help. If you want to know more about the Feed the Next Billion X Prize, then head over to feedthenextbillion.xprize.org to find all the details you need. This podcast comes from XPRIZE, a global future positive movement of over 1 million people and rising, delivering radical breakthroughs for the benefit of humanity. Sign up to join us and support the movement that is making a change in the world 10 times faster. Whether it's lending a hand, a dollar, or an idea, we all have a role to play in making the future a better place. The only way to get the future we want is to create it ourselves. Learn more at XPRIZE.org. See you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.